Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Wednesday night, we speak a lot about what isn't working in this country, but what about the things that are? National Post reporter Kristen Hopper joins us to talk about life expectancy going up, divorces going down, and why our Lego is oddly cheap. We talked to one of the motorists who stopped with his wife and daughter to help the victims of a fatal bus crash in the interior of BC on Christmas Eve to find out what they saw and what they did and how a found phone brought some comfort to a grieving family. We hear from one passenger who was trapped on a via rail train for nearly 24 hours and why holiday travel chaos that stopped so many travelers in their tracks exposes a far bigger problem with passenger rail in this country. But first, we head to Buffalo to find out more about what caused a massive and deadly snowstorm that slammed into the region over Christmas, dumping more than four feet of snow and claiming 34 lives. You know who it's been really tough for? People in Erie County, New York. Uh, that's home to Buffalo, New York State's second largest city after the Big Apple, of course. Uh, they're still digging out from an almost unimaginable 50 inches of snow. That's more than four feet, about 130 centimeters that fell over the Christmas break. Um, it was the result of a bomb cyclone. We'll figure out what that means exactly. Unleashing uh, this incredible lake effect blizzard, um, causing one of the deadliest storms in the city's history. Uh, Buffalo's mayor says they're making progress in clearing all that snow. The, the pictures of it are unbelievable. There are literally mountains of snow piled up now in front of buildings in downtown Vancouver. There's a driving ban in place in the city to try to make sure crews can clear the roads properly. The National Guard is going door to door to check on people because so many people lost power. Here's Buffalo's mayor, Byron Brown. We've cleared about 70 percent of streets in the city of Buffalo after this historic storm. Today, our snow fleet, along with other crews, continue their work to clear the roads in the city. A driving ban remains in effect in the city of Buffalo. We are asking for motorists not to drive in the city so that crews can safely uh, finish their work safely for motorists and pedestrians, and safely for the crews that are working. Our goal is to get plowing done today. Uh, we are looking to opening up the city tomorrow. It's been nearly a week. I mean, that's just how much snow fell. And it's not like Buffalo's not used to snow. This is a snowy place. Uh, but, you know, just that amount of snow caught so many people uh, unaware or at least unable to escape um, countless emergencies in and around the city. Uh, Shakira Autry sort of typifies what happened. She posted this plea to Facebook early Saturday morning, Christmas Eve, after her boyfriend rescued a 64-year-old man suffering from severe frostbite, brought him home. They tried to get him help and found there was no one there to answer her calls. I had to blow dry the ice off of him because of how bad his hands was. Nobody has been, I've called the National Guard. I have called uh, 911. I've called uh, everybody. They just keep telling me I'm on a list. I don't want to be on no list. I don't care about nothing else. This man is not about to die over here on 111. Y'all need to get this man some help. 
they did eventually get him help, but it typified just how much, how difficult it was for any, in any emergency for crews to get to people. Uh, today, sadly, officials in Erie County announced the death toll had risen to 34, uh, 26 or 27, I believe, in Buffalo alone, including one woman who was trapped in her car for 18 hours as more than four feet of snow surrounded her vehicle. You know, Buffalo bore the brunt, but it's been, you know, a weather phenomenon over the Christmas break, unlike any seen in the United States in a generation. Joining me now from Buffalo is Stephen Vermet. He's a professor of geography at State University of New York, Buffalo College. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, you know, I've been to Buffalo. I think, you know, most people who spent any time in Toronto spent some time in Buffalo, certainly to see a football game. We know that it's snowy, but wow, that was just unbelievable. What was it like? Well, you know, last winter, the city of Buffalo is recognized as the snowiest city in New York State and the snowiest city across the country. And we're certainly living up to that reputation. Um, I remember watching the lead-in for that cycle. You mentioned that bomb cyclone in your lead-in here, uh, moving across the country uh, at least a week before the storm. And I remember commenting that there was too much focus on Buffalo, and I saw that as a, a bad sign, and we bore that out. What was it like? Um, well, the storm was a triple threat, and um, this sets it uh, aside from many of the lake effect snows we've gotten in the past. Uh, we had a snowfall of around 50 inches. You mentioned 125, 130 centimeters. Winds as high as 70 miles per hour, like 112 kilometers per hour, and below freezing temperatures. And you combine that with the winds, creating a deadly wind chill. Um, if you can imagine, the snow is blowing horizontally, leading to zero or near zero visibility for hours on end. And I guess the way it was described is like snow blasting buildings. If you had mold on your aluminum siding, it's all clean now because it was snow blasted off. It was extremely scary for the uh, residents. And on top of that, if you're along the shoreline of Lake Erie, you had uh, six-meter waves crashing along and flooding the lake shoreline. So uh, it was bad. It's, it's been declared a federal dis- emergency area, a disaster. National Guard, as you mentioned, has been called in. And um, people have been stuck in their cars. Um, at one point in time, there was no emergency services available in the city of Buffalo at all. And I recall here uh, hearing about in the north of Buffalo, um, and, and one of the suburbs, um, they had to free snow plows and assign them to fire stations so that they could clear a path for emergency responders. So yeah, it's, 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 it could not get much worse. No, I mean, snowmageddon, we often use that term in Canada, as you know well, and this one yeah. certainly sounds like it. Uh, Buffalo is not a city that's, that's ill-prepared for winter. What, I guess there was simply no, this was just too much, the weather was too much here. Yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're really good when it comes to lake effect snow. I mean, we've had seven feet of snow um, in Buffalo, but there are two previous storms. Um, and I think, you know, people in St. Catharines and Fort Erie in Ontario would recognize uh, at least one of these. It's a blizzard of 77. That's kind of like the hallmark storm, and it had a lot of the characteristics of this storm. And we also had the blizzard of 85. Well, this Christmas blizzard of 22 joins this notorious group. And in the end, it may actually surpass these, these earlier storms. So it's that combination of the strong winds, the building of snow, you know, snow banks and dunes of snow, uh, the extremely cold, life-threatening temperatures that really made it worse than a, uh, a typical lake effect band storm, even if seven feet of snow fall. Uh, it's that combination that was so bad. So the triple threat. 
what what caused it? I mean, we talked about the bomb cyclone, but but meteorologi- meteorologically speaking, what happened here? Because you mentioned it was a triple, just a, you know, a triple threat of stuff. But we saw that bomb cyclone move across the country over the weekend. You mentioned there was a lot of notice about what was about to happen, but it seems even worse than had been predicted. Yeah, um, yeah, we were well aware. Of, I mean, the National Weather Service here did a good job, uh, well in advance of what what was what was going to happen. Um, I recall that last Thursday was uh, the last good day before the storm struck, and I know officials were telling people to gas up, do their shopping on Thursday, because afterwards travel would be impossible. So I think it might be a little more than what people expected, at least in, in, the, uh, in the past, but we were given warning. I mean, I stayed home. <laughs> I was, I, I haven't been home. I've been stuck at home for a while, and there's no way I'm going outside on Friday, and and you've heard about you mentioned that story about the, um, the the gentleman who was who suffered the you know the frostbite and stuff. Right. Um, there's all kinds of stories out there. I'll just relay one I think that that tells you why it's such a problem. Even though you're warned and say that you know emergency responders might not be able to get out, there was a lady, poor lady, who decided to drive out on the storm on Friday to get that last ingredient she needed for Christmas dinner. Her car got stuck in the snow. She called for help on her cell phone, doing everything right. But emergency responders could not reach her. Her family members tried in vain to reach her, and she ended up dying in her car um, from the uh, hyperthermia. So um, people were getting out into the storm, and they should not, be, should not have been out there. So it's been very, very tragic. Yeah, it was, we have it was people going, very... We have people uh, uh, going yeah. with snowmobiles, rescuing people and taking them from their homes when they lose power to warming centers. So it's, it's been quite the storm. What's it look like out your front door? Are you, have you been able to get out or do anything over the past few days, or are you just waiting for this to all clear away? Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, the folks in the city are waiting for all to clear away. There's still a driving ban. Um, I actually live a little south of the city, so I've got the snow and stuff, but uh, we, we can travel now, but I can't travel north. Um, so I, I cannot get into city. I work in the city of Buffalo, and I cannot get into work because of all the bans. So um, basically, it's digging out, and I'm sure people are getting very frustrated, being you know trapped in the, their home stuff. They can walk about, but they can't drive. Uh, the National Guard is preventing people from getting off at exits. They've they've opened up the throughway, but not the inner city expressways. Just the throughway going by Buffalo, and they're asking people not to get off and. And the National Guard is uh, preventing them from doing so. So uh, hopefully uh, by tomorrow, Friday, we'll be able to get into the city. But at this point in time, everything is, is blocked. They're digging out. Yeah. When we look back at the storms, I mean, I know this has happened in the past. You were talking about storms in the 70s, a storm in the 80s as well. But when we look at this one, is there is there a lesson to be learned here about just how much more it feels like these storms and it happened out here in BC as well, that these storms are getting more ferocious when they hit. It's not always, but when they do hit, uh, we're seeing the intensity of these storms unlike anything we've seen before. Yeah. You know, you're, yeah, you're talking about the, the return period, the frequency of these types of storms are seem to be increasing. Um, uh, that is in large due, I think, to, to a changing climate. Uh, you know, we talk about the world warming, but we don't talk about the extreme weather that was predicted back in the 80s, so when global warming was, was generally first talked about. And I think we're seeing that with the more intense hurricanes, but also more intense winter storms. So it does not always mean just getting warmer. It means we're going to have these extremes, and that's unfortunate. That's going to be happening into the future. 
Yeah, and I imagine for cities, uh, Buffalo being one of them, but certainly you know other cities across Canada where we have the same kind of snowy weather, we're going to have to adapt. Sure. And this one feels like something uh, that the city of Buffalo is going to have to look out for. It might not happen again uh, in a long time, but what do you think needs to be done now to prepare for storms such as this? Well, that's a good question because, you know, the, the death toll is, uh, I think right now the last number I heard was 38 deaths in the city and surrounding suburbs, and that surpasses the blizzard of 77. So what's going on? I mean, the blizzard of 77 came without any notice or very little notice, and people, you know, were surprised by it. Uh, here we had lots of notice. So I'm not sure the reason. There's, there's going to be a lot coming out of, of the emergency response. My understanding is that this storm was well forecasted, that the state um, took a, a proactive actions and, um, you know, everyone was ready for it, but we still have this, this disaster in Buffalo, this federal disaster. So uh, people are going to learn from this as they did in 77 and 85 and other storms, but um, there's going to be a lot of questions. I, I think now there's even some quibbling about, you know, the city's response with the snow plowing, and you can see the uh, executive in Erie saying, making some comments about the mayor in Buffalo. So we'll see what comes out of all of this in, in the end. Yeah, the finger-pointing begins as always a lot of right finger in these pointing. situations. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. And, and I imagine so there, I mean, there, has, you know, there have been cutbacks as well, I imagine. You know, the state budgets are always an issue as well when it comes to things like uh, snow clearing and those sorts of issues. Yeah, we may hear, you know, stories about, um, you know, post-COVID, uh, if we can say post-COVID, that, uh, uh, that you know, maybe things are undermanned. We'll, we'll just have to see uh, what happens. Uh, this, this storm was eerily familiar uh, in the sense, uh, if, you know, you go generations back to 77, 85. Uh, to give a Canadian context to this, there was a book uh, published called White Death. It was written by Canadian author Erno Rossi, who accounted several stories from the survivors of the blizzard of 77. And I've read through that book um, uh, in the past, and uh, uh, I'm sure the same can be done for this storm. And those stories are eerily familiar uh, with the blizzard of 77. So I'm not... Yeah. Hopefully the city gets better in responding. But one of the problems in the city of Buffalo is there's lots of street parking. We have very old um, housing stock, and many people do not have driveways. So everything's on the street. And trying to, you know, plow four feet of snow with cars parked on the street creates problems. And one of the big things they keep talking about now is if you can't find your car, it's been towed to this place or that place. They're actually physically lifting up the cars, like with forklift-type uh, uh, vehicles, and removing them and taking them to yards so people can pick them up. Uh, so that's a big problem for the city of Buffalo is getting past those parked cars. That's an awful lot of snow. Stephen Vermette, thank you so much for your time tonight. Good luck uh, to you and, uh, and the city of Buffalo digging out from this. I'll just give you one last comment here. We are sure. on, on track to beat the, uh, in 1976-77, Buffalo received, uh, um, I think it was 199.4 inches of snow. That's about 500 centimeters of snow. We are currently on track to beat that record at this point in time in the year. So keep tuned. We'll see what happens. Well, we, we always know why Buffalo is an honorary Canadian city, Stephen. <laughs> that's, uh, and that's why I hope. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Well, as 2022 draws to a close, it is time for our last weekly installment of our Journal Corner, when we invite a journalist on to talk about stories they've been covering. Interesting stuff. And what better way to see out the new year than with one of our favorite guests, National Post reporter Tristan Hopper. 
who's in Victoria tonight. Lots to talk about this evening. Uh, Tristan just wrote a series of articles about what's broken and what's not in this country. What's not is pretty interesting. What's broken is, I think we talk about on the show quite a bit, but what's not is also interesting. Uh, more than some 50% of Canadians want a federal election in 2023, which seems astounding. Um, there's a U.S. congressman whose CV is so fictitious that it's hard to figure out what on it is true. And uh, one of Tristan's... Uh, uh, sort of bugaboos is is paper straws and uh, those are fast becoming a more of a reality we'll talk about that as well uh, tristan merry christmas happy new year thank you so much for joining me thanks for having me so uh what you you looked at what was broken and i think we could talk about medical wait times and all kinds of stuff uh a few weeks ago and then last week you looked at What's better in Canada? And you found some really interesting stuff about stable marriages and Lego. Uh, tell me what's working in this country right now, because we hear so much about what isn't. Uh, the, yeah, the story idea came courtesy of my dad. So classic parent pitch. Uh, nice. I've been writing, you know, he reads everything I write. And he's like, yeah, you've been writing a lot about how, you know, everything's going to hell. How about you write about nice things for change, son? So... I did, and it actually did really well. It, it turns out, you know, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. That's the old journal slogan. Uh, apparently, yeah. if it's you know moderately positive, it leads. That's a weird. Well, one. yeah, at this time of year, always welcome as well. You found out some interesting stuff, though. Something about you know, certainly about uh, about marriages in this country, the cost of Lego hot dogs. Yeah, a few of them, and some we should be proud of. Some of them are just you know, kind of. They're happening everywhere. Uh, like I mentioned, uh, cancer is becoming more survivable. Uh, that's pretty much the case everywhere. Uh, cancer technology, some of it is due to Canadian innovations, but it's sort of happening everywhere. One of them uh, was particularly surprising to me was our road deaths are going way down, uh, like just compared to 20 years ago. And that's not too long ago. That's I'm still in you know, high school. Um, we basically have 1,000 less people each year dying on roads, and that's despite the fact that we're adding more cars, more roads, and way more people uh, each year. Um, and again, that's not an, it's, it's not an inevitable trend. You would think like, oh, cars are getting safer or something, but in the U.S., it's the opposite. Car, you know, more people are getting killed on the roads. So as to why that's happening, uh, I don't know. We're just getting better at not dying on roads. Uh, we're slowing down. Drunk driving is going down. So that is actually, of all the things I found, that's the thing I think we can take most national pride in because that's our doing has caused fewer people. And a thousand is a lot. That's a whole lot of people not dying each year. It is. Uh, Canadian marriages are oddly stable. That was a pretty good yeah, that's, Well, that's certainly another, compared to our parents. Yeah. So, yeah, compared to, so we basically hit, uh, that's, that's another one where people were surprised. They assumed it was just getting, you know, the, the standard thing is like half of all marriages, uh, you know, fall apart. And that was true in the 90s. So basically, uh, a low level rate of people got divorced. And then the boomers just brought it to the stratosphere. And it sort of peaked around the 1990s. That's when divorces kind of got their highest. And then they've just been going down and they keep going down more and more and more to the point where in 2020, which is actually when I got divorced, um, that was the lowest ever since the 1970s. And the 19, that was before we even had no fault divorce. So if you got divorced in the early 1970s, you had to sh someone had to have an affair or you had to have some sort of reason for it. So we're below even those numbers despite population growth. So the rate of divorce is just plummeting. 
And it's plummeting way faster than the rest of the G7. So the Americans, French, everybody else has more divorces than us. So for some reason, our marriages are stable. I don't know why. It would be worth looking into in 2023. Our inflation rate, this is something we talk about all the time. And we know this because we look at all the other countries' inflation rates when our numbers come out. But uh, our inflation rate's actually pretty low by world standards these days. Yeah, so it is at generational highs here in Canada. But yeah, when you look at the OECD numbers, um, we're we are the envy of much of the world. So the Dutch, uh, we never stop hearing about how great the Dutch are with all their bike lanes. They're getting hammered with 15% inflation. So it's 6.7% inflation, which is still very high. And, you know, I can give you any number of reasons. You can still hate the Bank of Canada. So don't worry about that. You can still hate them. But, um, yeah, our inflation is quite good as compared to even stable countries. Like, obviously, it's going to be out of control in you know, Venezuela or Ecuador or whatever. But, um, yeah, all across Europe, it's worse. It is. Uh, I was like the Netherlands, 14.3. Belgium, 12.3. Italy, 11.8. The EU average is 11.5. It's, uh, Canada's looking pretty, pretty, pretty decent compared to those, which leads me to the whole idea that, 50% of Canadians won an election in 2023 because one of the big, obviously one of the big conservative talking points is inflation, just inflation as they call it, as they call it unfairly, I would say. Um, but is that a surprise? I've, I've never known so many people to want an election. It, it is a little surprising. Yeah, because yeah. if there's anything we hate, it's, uh, you know, having it's an election. Uh, like, uh, I'm, I'm reminded, like, it's been in my lifetime, but basically half of the elections, the main topic of most of the election has been why it's BS. We have to have this election. So yeah. uh, that was I remember 2011, which is when the conservatives uh, won their majority. Yeah. Half of that campaign was just like, why are we having this election? It's stupid. I hate elections. Um, yeah, so that's usually, which uh, is fair, you know, well, yeah. elections are annoying. It dominates the news. Uh, you have to find out your neighbor supports a different party. And you got to look at that sign all, all the time. So, um, I think yeah. it's very healthy to dislike democracy is good. I'm glad we pick our own governments, but it's also healthy to you know, dislike that actual process. So it is surprising that we would want to go through that. And you have to really screw things up for a large portion of Canadians to actively want an election because we really don't like doing it. What struck me uh, looking at the polling, at least the recent polling on Pierre Polyev, is that we actually ha- are, have now ended up with two, uh, you know, a, a prime minister and a leader of the official opposition that are both sort of equally unpopular, <laughs> that two, two people that the vast majority of Canadians seem to really not like, depending yeah, on, but, depending but on what I side you're I think that's to Polyever's advantage because I think uh, a lot of Trudeau's brand is based on being likable. And I think uh, sort of Polyever's secret weapon is that he doesn't need to be likable. Uh, he can be, you know, this, this weirdo who dresses like an old man uh, because I think what he's pushing is his, his personal brand is everything's broken. You need someone to fix it. And, you know, that person, it, it almost enhances it if he's a jerk. Uh, that nobody likes uh, because he's sort of pitching himself as he's got to do all this messy business. Um, So, yeah, this is the rare instance in politics. It may not happen again in my lifetime in which being unlikable and weird. And I I still don't know what's in the tariff. That's pomade where you you can buy pomade. Um, Yeah. All all, all of those potentially off-putting things that would, you know, make a a, a standard political strategist lose sleep. uh, That is, 
to his uh, advantage at this particular point in Canadian politics. Yeah, well, I remember when Stephen Harper first came along, he sort of fit the bill as well. Although Paul Martin wasn't, um, he was a nice, I always, Paul Martin was, you know, I interviewed them, all, I interviewed all of them at one point. He, he was a decent man, but he had a hard time coming across as being particularly likable. But Stephen Harper didn't exactly present himself as being the most uh, affable guy. <laughs> I remember that famous picture of him shaking his son's hand at school, right? That was the, that oh, was yeah, the famous yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I, I've always, uh, you know, I always that democracy is healthiest when uh, you have people who aren't tremendously comfortable. And my favorite politician is always someone who looks beleaguered. Um, yes. Like, I, I, I want to take it a step further. Not only do they look uncomfortable and unlikable, but they look like they hate every single day that they are in power. Um, I think that's, <laughs> that's where you have a just perfect. Like, I, I would almost in my, my ideal political system would be, you know, it's a form of jury duty. Like, uh, we, we just, a van shows up and we, you know, find someone who seems re- reasonably competent and we just sort of, you know, detain them uh, by the force of the state and they have to run things for a while. Um, yeah, you've you got to be suspicious of anyone who looks like they're enjoying it too much. <laughs> yeah, this has you know. never been tried, uh, this sort of democracy by, you know, detention and kidnapping, but uh, I, I think it would yield a, a, a good system. It might yield more likable candidates in the long run, <laughs> but it's it's been Possibly. an interesting year. So, uh, I mean, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, we do have a long history of just uh, amazingly. I think more so than other countries. Um, I mean, if you look at the history of just Canadian prime ministers, we have some catastrophically unlikable. I mean, our longest-serving prime minister, Mackenzie King, uh, was probably just unbelievably low quantities uh, of charisma. Uh, he didn't make an impression on any, and he he met everybody. Uh, he met Hitler, he met FDR. Um, I, I don't think he meant, he doesn't really factor into any political autobiographies. Just no one remembered him, and if they did, it was just why he was there and how strange he was. So we do have a long history of, you know, people without friends who are somehow in charge of the country. An about face from George Santos. I apologize if if anybody feels hurt or betrayed. I will gain everybody's trust back by just delivering results for them and making sure they do not forget why they voted for me in the first place. The Republican telling Sky Ostriker with City and State New York he did embellish parts of his resume, but that he's done nothing wrong. He remains defiant despite calls for him to resign for making up that he attended college and lying about work experience, which was exposed by the New York Times. Lionel Moyes, ABC News, New York. Tristan Hopper is with us this half hour. George, I, you know, this story, um, <laughs> I mean, this is someone who just got elected to Congress in Long Island in New York, uh, who lied about just about everything on his CV. And it seemed like such a fitting end to 2022 that this was the story that would sort of dominate uh, the political headlines in America as we ent- exit this year. This was a highly enjoyable story. Yeah, it was like one, one of those, uh, uh, like a British panto, uh, in which it just gets more and more insane as it goes on because you start the story and you're like oh yeah lie, lied about working for goldman sachs he worked with a company that was affiliated with goldman sachs and then uh lied about going to school um didn't lie about like you know i went to an ivy league but i actually went to you know university of california you didn't go to school at all and then it gets more and more surreal as you dig into it so it starts getting to oh yeah i'm actually not jewish um, you know, there's questions about, uh, he claims to be the first, like, you know, gay Republican congressman. It's like, is he, is he really gay, though? He was, he's married to a woman for a while. And then it gets, it starts just getting really surreal. And they're like, you're wanted in Brazil for like, unknown crimes. 
So Check I'm fraud. reminded of, uh, I won't name the politician's name, but uh, it was someone who was kicked out of a particular Alberta political party. And uh, yeah, there was like a string of charges and it was like plagiarism. And then at the end, it got into like poaching uh, or something like that. So th- th- that's that's what this is. So yeah, it would have been a good story with just the top three, but it just keeps going. And as you mentioned, where it's it, it, it's hard to sort of determine what about his life w- was not completely made up. So it's yeah, obviously it, there's a there's a problem here with this individual. Yeah, it's it's just it's the shamelessness of it that's so astounding. So astounding. I mean, I, I know I've had to fill. I have a CV, right? We all have CVs. You know, even when you get a date wrong, you, you, I used to spend hours trying to, or not hours, just trying to make sure I got, I remember sitting in a CV once where my graduation date was wrong. I, I think I put 93 instead of 94. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, I, I hope they don't, I hope that doesn't get me disqualified. This guy was just like, hey, uh, yeah, I worked at Goldman Sachs. Hmm, I went to school here. This could be good. And then he gets elected, which is, yeah, I don't know. I would like I mean, to think, uh, I mean, there's ways these can, these can spiral out of control. So, I mean, a, 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 a frequent Canadian example is the prominent academic or the prominent politician uh, who has said they've been First Nations this whole time. We find out that's not true at all. Yes. So I can see how that could sort of spiral out. There was a brief period of time I thought I had Jewish heritage. Uh, there was a name in my family tree that was sort of a Jewish name for that region of Europe. Uh, so we're like, uh, oh, that makes sense. I got curly hair. Boom, I'm Jewish. So, uh, you know, there was a few years before I, you know, get a, a Google search and realize, oh, that's not true at all. So I can see how if things had worked out different for me, if if I was running, say, in a heavily Jewish part of Montreal for you know a political party, I, you know that claim would go a bit too far, and then it would spiral out of control. And sure, I think that is maybe. what happens yeah. with a lot of these like pretendian candidates. But for that to happen everywhere, I don't know. But I'm I'm sure it's been you know an epic series of events that has caused him to live a life in which everything is a lie. Yeah, and he's and he's vowing he's going to get sworn in next week, and he's vowing to do it. He's vowing to go. Uh, they're going to investigate him. I guess they can try and kick him out, but uh, it looks like he's actually going to represent his district at least. Which, which again, uh, I mean, if you look at politicians from a utilitarian standpoint, as I try to, uh, I mean, maybe a chronic liar is to your advantage, Long Island, and this actually could work out well for you. It's only two year terms, so see how it works. And if it does, keep electing liars. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe you give someone who's completely incompetent and a serial liar a chance to, to be a politician. You never know. But it certainly does. Um, you know, if, if you thought you couldn't possibly degrade the politician more, this would certainly do it. This would certainly do it. Yeah, yeah. He's a sociopath. But if he's your sociopath, it's, it's like everybody hates lawyers, but everybody likes their lawyer. So as long as he's on sure. your side, it doesn't really matter, you know, how many lies he's telling I'm always fascinated when someone with 5 million Twitter followers gets into a spat with someone who not even a spat. She basically smacked a kickboxing champion. But the, have you been following this Greta Thunberg, Andrew Tate battle on Twitter today? Is it, is it something yeah, you looked at? Yeah, about? and I'd have to say uh, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, of Greta, and I'm also not a huge fan of the like you know small dick insult. Um, yes. But I, I think <laughs> I it was well handled in this particular it, – it's sort of an easy, low-hanging fruit. It happens to me a lot, which uh, you know may not be entirely accurate. Anyway, in this particular uh, instance, yeah, I think it was the rare instance of a a small dick joke told well. 
Yes, uh, for listeners who haven't seen this, Andrew Tate is a kickboxing boxing champion. He decided for whatever reason, like God only, I have no idea why these people there, are there so There may be some steroid by, use, which also has maybe. you know gen- genital effects, so she may have been but, very well placed with it. Insult. But you know, Greta, you know, I can understand. But Greta Thunberg, I mean, really, she's she's out there. But is this something you want to spend your time doing? So he takes a picture of himself fueling up some expensive car. What was it? His Bugatti, and he tells Greta about his thirty three cars. Each of them are more more sort of bad for the climate than the, than the one before it. And he says, you know, please give me your email address, and I'll send you the complete list of my car collection. And she says, yes, please email me at smalldickenergy at getalife dot com. And the thing, absolutely, how many retweets does it have? Two point one million likes 450,000 retweets today so it's been kind of the story of the day on but it's just Swedish environmentalists are not known for their quick comebacks so no they're not yeah I think it's just the fact that it's you know the source material it's not it's not a terrible comeback and where it's coming from I think is I don't get it world today rightly so if if you're a kickboxing champion and you own 33 cars. Why are you tweeting to Greta Thunberg for the love of humanity? Like, just leave her alone. So she, she, she cares about what she cares about. Why would you even, t- it probably took him hours to write this out. Why would he bother? I just don't. And then he gets smacked by a, by a teenager. I, I just don't get, I don't get it. I don't get why. The yeah, Greta you have Thunberg a warehouse thing. full of cars. Um, I, I would like to think you, you live on a, a higher plane of existence than the rest of its normies. And you would think. You know, the, the, the concerns of a Swedish environmentalist who was also a teenager uh, wouldn't even phase you. I mean, you, you should be in some sort of stratosphere of wealth uh, in yeah. which, you know, what, what the crowd is saying, you don't even consider. Um, yeah, so what, that, that is playing, disheartening. Yeah. That I, if I should ever get to a point where I have a warehouse full of cars, I may still be tortured by the, the thoughts of you know, the lower rungs. I, I've never seen you at tweet Greta Thunberg, <laughs> no matter what. So it's probably not a, it's obviously not a wise thing to do, even if you're a kickboxing champion. Uh, Tristan, thank you so much for your time. Oh, last question for you, because we have about 45 seconds left. I understand that you've already gotten rid of your Christmas tree because it was already dry. I've had that happen. It's the worst. Oh, yes. Yes, it was. Uh, I, I had, it was a, a fire hazard. So, uh, yeah, I had to uh, get rid of it. But I, I didn't know, uh, which, you know, my lady is in the room. It's yes. very big on like environmental toxins, but no problem yeah. with just having an incendiary bomb in the living room for a month. <laughs> the drying tree. In, in That's your a living different room. kind of threat. Burning to death, no problem. But you know, <laughs> God forbid there's any phthalates around. You know, <laughs> it seems a little early the twenty eighth, but if it's a hazard, it's a hazard. Tristan, have a happy new year. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I was out of the country uh, last week, up until Christmas Day, when we flew back to Vancouver. But obviously, I was paying attention to things that were going on. And even where I was in Florida, there was reports um, that came out about a bus crash, a fatal bus crash um, in BC in the interior. It was hard to miss. It was getting coverage everywhere. Uh, And it was just a little reminder of, of the kinds of tragedies that seem so much more amplified over the holidays as well. There are two separate investigations going on tonight, including one by the RCMP, into that fatal bus crash in BC's interior on Christmas Eve. Four people were killed. Uh, About 50 were injured when that passenger bus, which was headed westbound on Highway 97C, rolled onto its side east of Merritt, BC. The conditions were described as icy. Uh, that's sort of the, the 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 running hypothesis right now that road conditions were poor at the time. Um, it ended up in the eastbound lanes of the highway that connects Kelowna to the Coquihalla Highway. 
One of the victims was 41-year-old Karanjot Singh Sodhi. Uh, he leaves a wife and two young kids back in India. He came to this country about three months ago to work as a long-haul trucker, but was taking the bus back to meet his family for the holidays in the suburbs of Vancouver. His cousin, uh, Kalwinder Singh, has worked as a long-haul trucker for the past decade. He has experience driving the roads, uh, the same road. And he believes that 400-kilometer stretch of road from eastern BC to Surrey is amongst the worst in North America. Please be careful about that highways. Too many bad things happens in always. I am a long-haul truck driver from last 10 years. Every year, the same story. They did not clean the road. Uh, that was Kalwinder Singh. He is the cousin of one of the victims, the only one who's been identified so far of the four who died in that bus crash uh, on Christmas Eve. Uh, there have been questions as to whether that stretch of road had been properly plowed, if the bus should have been operating. Of course, there are always those sorts of questions. There'll be a mechanical inspection of the bus as well. Yesterday, BC's Minister of Transportation, Rob Fleming, said um, the road conditions were okay and that commercial vehicles are prepared for that kind of weather. There's a lot of questions that people want answers to, myself included. We don't have those answers today. We must let the investigators do their work and uh, report out on anything that may have contributed uh, to such a devastating, tragic occurrence uh, that ripped across British Columbia. BC's Minister of Transportation, Rob Fleming, speaking yesterday. Well, there were so many stories of people who stopped to help, of course, uh, on that stretch of road. One of them was Bill Gerber. He was traveling with his wife and daughter uh, along the highway, that same stretch of road, heading to Kelowna uh, when they came upon the crash. And he joins me now. Bill, thank you so much. Yes, good evening. Um, I'm happy to be able to join you tonight for this. Yeah, I, I can only imagine that as time goes on, you must still be thinking a lot about what you saw that night because, I, I you know, having seen tragedy in my life as well, you know, those, those images have a way of sort of settling in on you a little bit and it can be a kind of a difficult time. Uh, yes, yes, um, I did. I did see some things and experience some things you don't often see. And in fact, um, uh, there was the, uh, one lady who was trapped in the front of the bus, and, and I was hearing people say, "Stay with us, stay with us, stay awake, stay awake." And I was thinking about that, and that's what you hear on movies and TV and things like that. And I thought, I've I've never heard that in real life, and yeah. um, so you're, you're right. You the, the images stay with you. Uh, I think time time will heal. Tell me a bit about the night you were you were you you. That's a road I know you drive a drive a lot. Obviously, uh, tell me a bit about just that night, what it was like, and and uh, and and how how you came upon the crash. Okay, well, we we were hemming and hawing whether we were going to go because you know we were the advisories were don't travel unless you really have to. The roads weren't that good. A friend of mine uh, had traveled just ahead of me, and he. He called it and said, you know, the roads aren't that bad. They're mostly dry and wet. Um, we were having a bit of a warming trend at that time, and even in the mountains. So we headed out. Uh, we did hit some black ice, uh, which we, we negotiated fine. When we, when we went through it, all the trucks were stopped beside the road putting chains on because it was, that was super slick. There was one fellow, a driver, that as we were crawling along, he stepped out of his truck, and when he stepped on the road, his feet went out from under him, just went and he landed on his back. Wow. So what we did is we, we drove to the shoulder and drove with two, two tires on the, on the shoulder, the snowy shoulder. And eventually, it, you know, five or, ten, five or eight kilometers, and that was done. Then we continue on, and then we got on the connector. And I would, 
I, I, I'm going to tell you our, my, my interpretation of the road. Um, it was compact snow. It was dry snow. In my mind, it was typical winter driving for that stretch of road. Um, it was packed down. They had probably been plowed at some time. And for us, we were, we were doing about 80 kilometers an hour. There was very little traffic. My wife, who is my external conscience when we are driving, wasn't even complaining. She was comfortable. And so, and my daughter too. They, they, they let me know when we're, when we're going, when we're exceeding their comfort levels. They were quite vocal. They were both, comfort, you know, with that. To me, the roads seemed typical. I know some people have said they were treacherous. Some people said they should have been closed down. To me, they seem like normal driving. We would go to try to get to Cologne every Christmas, and, and that's pretty typical of most of the roads in, you know, in, that, in the Okanagan in the wintertime, I believe. And, and so, then you anyway, come across, oh, oh, right, go yeah, ahead. I was going to yeah. say, and then, then you come across something that you haven't, that is completely oh, yeah. out, out of the ordinary, it, yeah. Exactly, exactly. We were, we were flagged down. We saw something up ahead. We saw traffic and stopped. So we slowed down, and, and this fella said, hey, there's, a, there's been an accident up front, up there. He said, do you have a first aid kit or any experience with first aid? They maybe could use it. Um, he didn't even know what it was. And so we said, well, okay. But then he said, well, you know, but I think it might be taken care of. There's a number of people there. So we continued on. And I don't want to sound shallow, but we weren't even planning on stopping. And so we, we just thought, okay, we'll just see what's happening. And if they don't need us, we'll just carry on. I assumed it was one car had spun out of control and, and hit the abutment on the side and, you know, and, you know, nothing really. We drive up and then all of a sudden, there's all these people standing around, milling around. And we're thinking, well, that's a lot of people for like one car. And then, and then our gaze turns and then we, then we saw the bus. And it literally took two or three seconds to sink in. And then it's like, it's a bus. It's a, it's a, you know, then the, these are all the people from the bus. And, you know, like it was complete shock to come across that and to realize there was a bus here on its side and these people were all part of it. So we just stopped the car. My wife and daughter jumped out and, you know, said, okay, let's go see, let's go see if we can help. I, I, I continued on cause I was in the, the open lane. This bus was kind of taking up the shoulder in the slow lane. So I just moved my car up and still thinking, Oh, they're going to be a couple minutes. My daughter runs back in about a minute says, dad, dad, we need the blankets. We need the blankets. And so we had three in the car. So she grabbed the blankets. A minute or two later, Dad, Dad, I, I need to get my mittens and my toques and, and your toque and stuff. These people are cold. So she grabbed whatever winter things we had. And then she comes back again and says, Dad, come, come. They need you. They, they need some help lifting someone out of the bus or something. And But by the time I got back there, I think everyone that was coming out of the bus was out. Um, there was some that didn't never did come out. Uh, yeah. So that's how it happened. And then my wife spotted two, two young ladies that were um, crying and, and had some injuries with some blood showing. And she kind of, you know, worked with them, coached them, encouraged them, um, you know, calmed them. Um, they were actually planning to go right to the airport and head, head off to India. First time back in India in six years. And we had to break the news to them that, 
they probably weren't going to make their flight, which they were hoping to do still. Shock. I'm sure they were in shock, right? Yeah. And your, your wife is a retired nurse, right? I mean, they, and your daughter has some first aid, so they knew what they were doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a little bit out of practice, but she knew. And then there was a, helped a lady who had some severe neck pain and back pain. And at the time, we didn't know, but she had a fractured vertebrae in her neck and, and one in her lower back. And so she kept her straight. She was in a lot of pain. And eventually we were able to lay her down, and which eased her pain a lot. And then, um, which was good because when the paramedics arrived, they, they came with different color ribbons and they, they gave a quick assessment. Okay, if you're standing and you're not in pain, okay, you got, you get um, green. And then if they look more severe, then they, they, they tore off a, a ribbon and they tied it on their arm yellow. And then the severe ones were red. So they wanted, and they did a great job. Um, they wanted and, and, to take, obviously, you, the, most, the most injured ones first. Yeah, and, and there were other motorists there, too. I mean, there, there, was, there was a group of you that had stopped to help, right? It must have made, I mean, it must have made, it must have been felt so chaotic, but you must have been a real help at that point. I mean, they obviously needed the help, and there you were. Yeah, it, it, you know what? It, it, I think it, initially it was more chaotic. Um, when, we, when we pulled up, I overheard there, and there was some, and I want to give a shout out to some of the bus passengers. There was one fellow there, about six one or six two. He was calling out orders, and they were pulling the um, escape hatch off the roof. And I think there was one or two people that maybe that came out through there, because the lady that was trapped inside the bus was right in the way to of coming out of the windshield where people were walking out through the front of the bus. And so eventually, I think they, they took some people out that hatch and they, they ripped that hatch off. And he was the one saying, where's the, where's the, where's the first aid kit? We got to get the first aid kit. And, and so there was some, some of the passengers that really did a, a, a really great job of, of helping. But when I got there, it wasn't that chaotic. Um, people were, some people were crying. I think a lot of people were in shock. People were cold. They were shivering. Um, but it wasn't bedlam. It, it, um, there were some other people. There was a couple from Merritt there, um, and they, they, were, they were helping calm, calm the people, and I remember hearing, hearing her say, you know, the ambulances are on their way now, guys. Okay, let's, let's stick together. Hey, let's huggle together. Let's stay warm. Don't worry. They're going to be here soon. They're going to take care of all of you, and, and I think that had a great calming effect and then um, my daughter, and I was so proud of her. She was going from person to person. And I kind of, you know, I kind of started doing that too, but just, you know, checking, put your hand on their shoulder. Are you okay? Are you okay? And, you know, and, and some of them were, and, and even the ones that were in shock probably didn't know if they were or weren't. And if they needed something, we tried to, we tried to get them what they needed. Um, one girl came up and her hand was quite badly bleeding and right at the perfect time, uh, I think it was another motorist came up with like three towels. So we just took right. a towel, wrapped it around her hand, which already had a tourniquet, but we could see that it was still, it was still kind of bleeding. So, Bill, I understand the story that I was reading about finding a phone that that was quite, um, it was quite, it was, it was poignant and 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 <laughs> and sad all at once. But but you picked up a phone that you found and looked to see if someone there would claim it. Yes. Yes. Uh, I picked up a laptop and I found the owner of it, you know, a, a UBC senior engineering student. And, and I had seen this phone on the ground and I kept thinking it must be 
someone who's been applying first aid. It was right by a first aid kit. And no one picked it up. I kept seeing it. I finally thought, you know, I found the owner for the laptop. Maybe I can find the owner for the phone. So almost somewhat reluctantly, I picked it up. Um, I, I hit the button so it, show, it show, showed the picture on the screen. And I walked around person to person to person. Is this yours? Is this yours? Is this yours? Is this yours? No luck. No luck. Mm, what should I do? Put it back. Should I put it back down? Should I hang on to it? I ended up hanging on to it. As we continued our journey, it started ringing. And at first it was the boyfriend just trying to reach his girlfriend. It, it actually, at the time we didn't know this, but it belonged to a young 18-year-old girl who was heading home for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, then the father called, trying to reach his daughter because communication had stopped. Uh, texting had stopped. And so we, my daughter, who was also 18, um, she had the phone in the back seat, and she, uh, she communicated with them. She kind of very gently said, well, there's been an accident, and, you know, this has happened, and this has happened, and this has happened. And, of course, they wondered, did we see their daughter? And eventually they sent a picture, and is this, did, did you know if you saw her? Well, we bandaged the hand. You know, she's a young Asian um, girl. We bandaged the hand of a young Asian girl, and we thought, maybe that was it. But we were focused on her hand and not on her looks. Well, that night, about 11.30, um, they called. The, the boyfriend called. And he tried all the hospitals. No one had. She had not been registered anywhere, um, which was kind of sad. And so we were thinking, oh, what happened? My daughter said, could she have been kidnapped? Like, anyway, yeah. you know, like, how does this girl disappear? Anyway... She missed a couple calls, I think one at three in the morning, one at one in the morning, but at 5.30, got a call from the mom, and the police had been to the door with bad oh. news. So, the mom, sorry, yeah, the mom we'll called, time, yeah. the mom called and said, but you saw her, she can't be gone. You you saw her, didn't you? You saw her there, right? And 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 we hadn't, you know, we we thought maybe maybe, you know, but you know, as a parent, you know, you're 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 grasping at the straws because who wants to accept that? Who wants to accept that when you're expecting your daughter to show up on your porch and it and it turns up being the RCB with that kind of news? But yeah. anyway, um, there was, you know, my daughter handled it very well. She said, well, you know, these are the, the police and, and, you know, they have good information and, and you, 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 you're going to have to trust them. Um, so the dad said, hey, can, can you bring the phone, you know, to, to us? Turns out they live about 10 minutes from where we live. Oh, wow. So we got home. We got home um, Boxing Day evening and we took it over there at 830. And, um, um, yeah, we were there almost an hour with these people and... What was kind of special was that um, these people felt that somehow, you know, we didn't know how it ended up on the ground in front of the bus. She was, uh, we later on learned that she was probably sitting in the back of the bus. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't scratched and beat up. We stopped on our way home and we found three cell phones and we're trying to find owners now. You know, this phone was in perfect condition. Anyway, I only have about... 15 seconds left. Sorry about that. But been, okay. Anyway, so nice we were able yeah. to return it. We were able to return it and, and it was, the family was ever, ever so grateful.
Bill, thank you so much for sharing your time with me tonight. And, uh, you know, it really does hit home just how tragic these events are to, to mm-hmm. hear that story. Yes. Okay. Thank you for allowing me to share. It has been a disastrous holiday stretch for Via Rail after a series of incidents forced the Crown Corp to cancel all service on its busiest routes between Ottawa and Toronto and Montreal and Toronto through Boxing Day. The official cause was a train derailment, a freight train derailment, uh, early on the 24th, along with a fallen tree, bad weather, you name it. Uh, We'll look at whether this represents a bigger problem for passenger rail service in this country with Greg Gormick, owner of OnTrack Consulting, after this. But first, we wanted to figure out what it was like to be on one of those trains. A few of them were stuck for like 20 hours. This is a four and a half hour journey between Toronto and Ottawa. Usually pretty easy. I've been on that train many times, but some passengers were stuck for nearly a full 24 hours on those via trains, uh, often in that Kingston corridor, right near Kingston and Coburg and so on, because the train simply couldn't move. And obviously, when you get on one of those trains for a four and a half hour journey, they're not equipped for a longer journey than that. Megan Ray was on one of those ill-fated trains that moved literally at a snail's pace from Toronto to Ottawa between Friday evening and Saturday afternoon. Uh, Megan, thanks for your time. I take that train a lot, so I know what it's supposed to be like. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I take this train very frequently between Toronto and Ottawa, and it's typically four hours, four and a half hours. This time, obviously, was quite a bit longer. I think it lasted about 21 hours before I saw Fallowfield Station. Wow. Um, gosh, what didn't happen, really? Like, the first thing that happened was there was apparently um, a delay because we were waiting for trains to pass us. The electricity was down, so we were down to one track. Then it was um, a tree fell on a train in front of us, so we were waiting for that to clear. And then because we'd been driving for so long, um, the engineers who were you know, driving the train, um, they max out their hours. So we had to stop and wait for new people to come and continue driving. And there was a lot of, you know, having to thaw out parts of the track manually to keep going. I think that was pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so I, if I know you, you, bet, you started off on Friday afternoon expecting to get to Ottawa sometime in, in the evening and you didn't get there till when? Yeah, so we left at around 5.45, so like 20 minutes delayed. I thought, oh, great, you know, only 20-minute delay. We were supposed to get in around 10 p.m. We didn't get in until Saturday at 3.30 p.m. So nearly a 24-hour ride. Yeah, yeah, quite nearly. (laughs) I mean, mean, I've been on that train, and, you know, they're not built for 21 hours. They're built for four and a bit. What, what happened on board? I guess, I mean, I understand people were good to each other and the staff was okay, but you, you were running out of stuff, right? Yeah. So um, our train was was pretty calm, which I was a bit surprised about. There wasn't too much like unrest like I heard on a couple other trains behind us. Yeah. What started happening is we were around the like 15 hour mark, the water on board stopped working. So we needed to get water bottles and there was no food left. And I think one thing that, you know, was really upsetting to people was that they were still charging us. Like while we still had food left and while there was still coffee and some soft drinks, you know, they were still charging us at like the 15 hour mark. <laughs> we were like, really for a wow. bottle of water at the 15 yeah. hour mark. Yeah. Yeah. And like tea, coffee, you know, things that you would think would be like a courtesy to to hand out for free, given we were stuck for so long. That's I, did. Did you get an explanation as to why that might be? I guess they they don't have the authority to start giving this stuff away, or 
Yeah, no, didn't get any explanation at all. It was around like maybe 20 hours when we got like a Tim Horton sandwich. I think we were we were at Napanee and I'm not sure who did this. It must have been Via Rail orchestrated a a delivery from a local Tim Hortons, which was which was great, but man, we were hungry. <laughs> yeah. But no yeah. unrest, right? Because I'd read about people sort of getting out and climbing over snow banks, going to look for help. Uh, you didn't have that on your trip. No, we didn't have that. I mean, there were a couple grumbles, you know, every time um, one of the staff members came on with with bad news. But generally, like people were pretty calm on our train and pretty lucky, I think, because it gets, you know, people really anxious, I think, when people start freaking out. But I did hear the train behind us. Um, yeah, people were jumping off the train, like, while they were stopped and trying to to get somewhere. Like, I don't know. I didn't see any of it happening, but uh, I believe it. Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, you know, from taking that, getting off that train, you're you're nowhere near a sidewalk, right? Like, that's yeah. not a nice place to be jumping off the train in the middle of winter, needless to say. Right. And none of the, the thing was, is that none of the train stations we were passing by had electricity. So even really? if you get off, they were all dark, like no heat, there were no cabs coming in. You couldn't, no way you could get an Uber. So there's really nowhere for, for anyone to go. So you just sat and sat and bided your time. What did yeah, you do I mean, for 21 I, hours? <laughs> I walked up and down the aisles quite a few times. Um, you know, that was pretty much it. I walked between cars a couple times, watched a bit of TV. I guess I must have slept. But yeah, that was that was not much else to do. And, and at, at one point, you know, the bathroom stopped working, which was uh, pretty unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah. You made it uh, at long last. I mean, overall, how was, how was, I mean, there's not much, obviously, that the staff on the train could do. It's unexpected for them too. But have, yeah. have you had any word about compensation or anything along those lines? Yeah. So um, during the train ride, we were told that we would be getting a 100% um, refund on our ticket and not just a credit, but like actually return to our form of payment, which is great. But honestly, at, at that time, you know, we were nearing like 20 hours we were all just kind of like, we really don't care. Like I would pay double just to get home now, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and and you've made some, uh, you made some travel arrangements or some travel changes based just on that experience, right? You figured for holiday travel, that's it for 2022. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I canceled my trip to Vancouver because I just anticipated some travel delays and my parents have been, you know, kind enough to offer to drive me home and I can't, you know, fathom getting back on a train. <laughs> That's, oh, so you're actually getting a lift back to Toronto, and this is when I your am. holiday visit is done. No more, yeah. no more, no more mass transit for you this uh, this holiday season. Yeah, not this year. Maybe 2023. I'll I'll reconsider when the when the weather's a little nicer. But yeah, unfortunately, I've just I feel a little burned and traumatized. You know, yeah. I know there's there's a lot of people like saying, "Well, I mean, you chose to travel on like the busiest." time of the year. And I'm like, well, yeah, so did everybody else. And you don't well, yeah. expect to be delayed that long. You know? No. And you were saying you had a friend who was, who was one of the Sunwing. Um, yes. Folks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she was stuck in Cancun. I believe she was on the air transat flight that right. came to rescue them and was uh, pretty empty. So definitely not the only ones struggling right now. <laughs> uh, you'll have lots to talk about when you next see each other uh, back, oh, yeah. back in Toronto, I suspect. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Megan Ray, thanks so much for sharing your story. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. 
you want to get home to your family for Christmas and you're not going anywhere. BRL maybe can you know have more measurement in place just in case of snowstorm because we are living in Canada. This is expected. They don't communicate issues to you fat, quick enough as a traveler. So you come all the way down here waiting to get on a train and it oh canceled. We all wanted to see our families over the holidays and nobody wanted to go through all of this. Passengers who were stuck over the weekend trying to get onto trains or stuck on trains, uh, all of this happened between uh, Ottawa and Toronto and Montreal and Toronto, really in that Kingston corridor. Uh, But does this expose a bigger problem with passenger rail in this country? If you've ever been on trains in Europe or in Japan, you know how fast and efficient they are. It's a very different situation here and in the U.S., clearly. Um, Joining us now with more on this is Greg Gormick. He's owner of OnTrack Consulting. Thanks so much for your time tonight. My pleasure, Ben. One of my favorite topics. Yes, indeed. You you write about this extensively. You know this situation inside out. So how surprising was this incredible cascade of failures that happened over the Christmas weekend? Not at all. I've been expecting something like this for decades. And it's not just VIA. It's the whole transportation system in Canada. It has been politicized for decades. It has been played with diddled, coddled, everything's been done to it. And now it's fracturing and all the little pieces are falling apart. And what it looks like, of course, when this happens is no communication. Things can, you know, huge delays. I mean, we'll take the VIA example. Um, No communication. It looked like there was very little communication with anyone hoping either on a train or hoping to get on one. Oh, no. Well, this is typical of public relations these days. It's not PR. It's CYA. Cover your ass. And they're very poor. This is something, and the minister has attacked. The minister of transport has attacked VIA. Well, he should take a look in the mirror because it is him and people like him through the decades who have led to this situation. We did not have to wind up with a fractured, largely irrelevant rail passenger system. We once had one of the best in the world. It's been destroyed. It's taken decades to do it, but it's now happening. And I'm sorry for all the people who have been inconvenienced by it. But, you know, maybe this will be a wake-up call. No country is going to survive without a proper transportation system, especially not one as big and far-flung as Canada's. So, yeah. you know, we need we need some drastic solutions here. But if you think one via is bad, I got bad news for you. We've now got two vias because this government has gone off on a tangent. They've created via high frequency rail, a new subsidiary, which will build this fabulous system in, oh, maybe 10, 15 years at an unknown cost that somehow will whisk everybody back and forth between, well, it started out Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto. Inevitably, they added Montreal, Quebec. Now to keep people quiet down in southwestern Ontario, they've added Toronto, Windsor. I've seen these things a dozen times. One of my shelves is full of reports on just these sorts of fantasies. I don't see the trains. Yeah, or or the tracks, right? I mean, the big problem here always is priority, right? I mean, one of the reasons they can't route new train or help people out when they're stuck uh, on between even Montreal and Toronto is that the tracks aren't theirs. Isn't that part of the, I mean, that's probably no, simplifying but that's, it. But. Yeah, but that's, that's a vastly overstated issue because right. for 150 years, freight and passenger trains coexisted 
perfectly because railroaders knew how to mix the two of them and they built the infrastructure to accommodate them. We have all this talk from Via. It's always CN's fault. Well, CN was running a pretty sloppy freight railway. They've gotten their act together recently thanks to a now-departed chief operating officer. I'll tell you, Via had been doing just fine on Via's tracks until this storm hit, and then all hell broke loose. If so VIA wants what, to run properly yeah. on – but we can't afford to duplicate the entire railway system just for VIA. Uh, we have to coexist. I, you know, in all of this, I've, all, I've asked several VIA presidents, and they always run away from the question. Have you actually sat down with CN and discussed what it would take and how the government could put up the money to do this so that both the freight and the passenger trains could peacefully coexist like they always did? The answer is no answer. They just run away from the question. Yeah, I, I know there was a lot of confusion because, of course, uh, you know it's a patchwork. But you know, Via is a crown corporation. <laughs> this is essentially they report they report to the Minister of Transportation. This should be a relatively easy one to fix if yeah. the if the if the will was there. I mean, we know how important rail should be, especially between Montreal, Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa. I know you think that's overdone sometimes, but in that corridor, it's incredibly important. You'd think they would this would be priority number one. Fix this. Absolutely. But instead of fixing the problem, they're now going to create another problem. They're going to rebuild 100 miles of, of abandoned Canadian Pacific track, abandoned for a good reason. It was a rotten route. CP replaced it with another route. They're going to rebuild that, and they're going to have this high-frequency rail gizmo. And it, oh, oh, it? it just goes... Oh, well, well, I mean, right off the bat, it's a term that they created themselves. The term that should be used is high-performance rail, and that's what's emerging more and more in the United States, and that's what they have overseas. That's what's led to high-speed rail, where they built their markets with high-performance rail. High-performance rail involves running freight and passenger trains on the same tracks, which have been upgraded and the capacity expanded to accommodate both of them. And then when you've built your market, then you can justify building these all new line segments that can operate at, you know, 300 kilometers per hour. Right now, VIA runs its trains. I'm sorry, I'm still imperial because the railway industry has stuck with that. We sure. run, in fact, the CN main line is right behind me where, where I live in Oshawa. Um, I've been on that line several times in the last few weeks. Those trains, those VIA trains, one, run at 100 miles per hour, 160 kilometers per hour, mixed in with freight trains. Well, it can be done. So, so if you look at what happened then uh, over the weekend, do you think it will be a wake-up call? Because, I mean, this seems like a worst case. It seems like everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. But it was uh, clearly a symbol of something bigger afoot when it comes to passenger rail, specifically on that really busy line between Montreal and Toronto, Montreal and Toronto and Ottawa. Well, it should be a wake-up call, but ultimately the call has to be made by Ottawa and I don't see any bright lights up there that are going to now turn around and go, yeah, maybe we should focus on the system that we have instead of this this promise that we keep making and dangling in front of people. But, you know, on top of this, what's also very, very revealing is that our highway and air systems broke down at the same time. And therein lies the problem. We have been 
forcing money into those systems for decades. They were supposed to have I mean, statements. The government, the federal government through the pandemic gave $10 billion to the aviation system. The airport authorities are dragging $15 billion worth of debt behind them. And you can just well imagine who's ultimately going to get stuck with that. And the prime minister, when he's handing out these checks, says, oh, Air service is the backbone of our regional transportation network. Well, maybe the question should be, why is that? Because rail is more resilient, the energy consumption is lower, and when the trains are properly filled, the energy consumption is at its peak, and the emissions follow the energy consumption. Everything is there in favor of a rail renaissance. But the call has to be made by Ottawa. As you said, via the Crown Corporation, Ottawa plays this nice little game. When you ask them why VIA has done something, and you know that it's ultimately Ottawa's responsibility, they give you a boilerplate answer. VIA is an arm's-length Crown Corporation that makes sure. its decisions. Oh, sure they do. They're under <laughs> Ottawa's thumb. And the provinces are nowhere to be seen because they feel, oh, that's a federal responsibility. Meanwhile, they're funding the ultimate competition for the passenger trains, which is the highways. And the highways don't recover even half of what we put into them. And then people say to me, oh, but those passenger trains are so subsidized. It's all subsidized. It sounds like, uh, well, we could have, we'll have this conversation again, Greg, because it feels like we have a lot more to talk about. But for the time being, uh, for the time being, Greg, thank you so much for shedding some light on what has been a very bad weekend for Via. Much appreciated. I hope it gets better for them and for all of us. <laughs> Thanks. Agreed.